Thanks, Debbie. It's so good to do that, isn't it? I think about that every time, how it is just this, um, it sobers us up. I mean, I heard my wife beefing a lot about the weather today, and I thought, babe, if you could just have a little perspective on life, there's more going on. And since I'm hoping there was healing for her. <laughs> Welcome, you guys. My name is Matt Moberg. Um, if this is your first time here, we're glad that you are here. Uh, um, it's good to be here in spite of the weather. Tonight, we are going to be taking another step forward in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is the season that obviously follows Christmas and precedes Easter. It is associated with the idea of light, which is a helpful reminder that I've said before and we'll say it again. It's helpful because the light does not produce something new, but provides clarity to what's always been there. So when we talk about Jesus as the revelation of God, what we are saying is that through the person of Jesus, we get to see how things have always been. Now, it's not something new that's getting put into place. It's a revelation on how things have always been. The light is being turned on. Today's text is about how that revelation tends to play out how we get invited to actually see these sorts of things, how the clarity comes our way. The text we're going to go to is in Luke 4. Luke 4, 14 to 31. I don't know for sure if we'll get through the whole thing, but let's go as far as we can. Jesus returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Return. Okay, so context. He was in the woods. Jesus was in the woods for six weeks, 40 days, and he was without water and without a warm meal. And so he is down a few pounds here, and yet he is coming still in the power of the Spirit. And in doing so, news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, where he was raised. A lot of people think that Jesus was raised in Bethlehem, but that is just the Christmas piece of the story. That's where he was born. But it's in Nazareth where he went from boy to man. And so he went back home right here where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. It didn't matter what the weather was looking like that day. It was his custom. And so he went. When he got there, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. He found the place where it is written. Jesus did not just flip open the scroll and put his finger down and hope for good fortune. He went searching for a specific place. There was intentionality behind what he's about to say. And what you're about to read, the debut sermon of the Savior, is his uh, platform. This is his inaugural address. So, I mean, yes, we have 2,000 years that separate us from Jesus, and we weren't in that space, obviously, there at the synagogue. And yet, in all of our questions and trying to gauge what was Jesus actually about in his life, what was he trying to implement and invite us into? Well, he went searching once for a specific place in the text of Isaiah that gives us a clue. And Jesus reads from this place, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled 
in your hearing. And then he said, Omega out, and he dropped the mic on the ground. That's funny. I thought about that joke for about three hours today. That's literally about, okay. Jesus goes back here. He goes to Nazareth, and this is a big deal. Like there is a certain amount of buzz that is surrounding him at this point because Nazareth's native son is finally making a return home. They've heard the stories. The rumors have reached them that Jesus is out and about in the region of the Galilee and he's stirring up good things. People are being healed of blindness. The crippled are learning how to walk. Truth is being proclaimed and the powers on high are finally being spoken to. Jesus is doing good works. And then back in Nazareth, they start wondering, when's he going to... Bring some of that here. The people who produced him, when do they get to reap the rewards from this? Word reaches them that Jesus is coming home. And so the city is all abuzz. This is like, um, this is like Dylan going home to Hibbing, right? This is KG coming back to Targetson. This is like Tyler Beinlich going back to Hudson. When Tyler goes to Hudson, all heads start turning. They go, finally, the native son has returned. All is well in the world again. That's what is happening here. Actually, you know what it's really like? It's like when LeBron left Miami to come back home. Yes, Akron, Ohio was excited that LeBron was finally getting the trophies that he was looking for in Miami, but they wanted in on the action. That's what's happening here. Nazareth looks at their native son from afar and they wonder, when's he gonna bring some of the love and the life that he's found out there back here to us? And that's a fair question and angst for them to carry because it had been some time since they'd seen something good like that. Nazareth was not a place that was familiar with good news. Nazareth was not a place that was familiar with good fortune. Nazareth was a place that was bruised and bleeding and was feeling the weight firsthand and intimately, probably more than most places in the world back then, of how cold been unrelenting those Roman boots really were. How heavy those chains were that came from Roman taxation policies. How frequent crosses would be popping up in the neighborhood with Nazarene sons being pinned up against them. Nazareth was filled with people who were bleeding and were bruised and were thirsty for a better day. They didn't have many reasons to keep on keeping on. Fortune was not theirs. And yet, they kept gathering at church. Because not long before them, not long before the Romans, they had heard a song that a prophet once sang. A song that said that someday God would send somebody and all of the wounds would be made right again and all of the wounders would be brought to justice. Every ache, every pain, They would all be healed, and all of the bullies would be held accountable. This song, of course, is the song that was initially sung by um, Isaiah, and it was Isaiah who dreamed this dream that eventually God would send the Messiah of sorts, and it wasn't just to preach motivational sermons or to give you a morale boost every now and then. The Messiah that Isaiah painted for the people was one that came with a good word, but also with wrath. It was going to come and eliminate all of the people who stood in their way. And so the Nazarenes figured, if that's what God's about to be about, I mean, we might as well get after that work right now. 
if that's the vision that is ultimately coming, is that God is going to destroy our enemies, then why wait? If that's the, the direction of God's heart, then let's get in on the action now. And so history tells us that in this land of Nazareth, uh, it had probably the most zealots and freedom fighters and in Roman eyes, terrorists that would spring up and try to violently push back against the powers that be. They would strike back. And again, it's not hard to understand why when we understand the levels of oppression that were happening there. I went to um, Palestine a few years ago. Uh, Debbie, you came with me. It feels like something I should remember with confidence. Yeah, we connected up on that trip. In Palestine, we went to Balada Refugee Camp. Balada Refugee Camp, it was um, initially built as a temporary shelter for 5,000 people. It currently is holding 27,000 people with one doctor to tend to all of their needs. It is no surprise to anybody that there are a lot of freedom fighters coming out of a place like that. You mix in the different stats too that show that in the Balada Refugee Camp, of those 27,000 people that are living in a space that was built for 5,000, 40% of the current residents are under the age of 15. It's a deadly concoction. It's fire and gasoline when you mix occupancy and you mix oppression with adolescents like that. That's what's happening, though, in Nazareth. And so you have all these people that are rising up, freedom fighters that are finding their feet and they're going out. Short lives are being lived. Parents are losing their kids. But this is the song that they were raised in. When they showed up on Saturday morning for synagogue, they would pull out Isaiah 61 because it was the theme track for an oppressed people. In fact, what we know from historical records in the Dead Sea Scrolls and elsewhere is that Isaiah was like the prime track that people would pull up. It was the hit single of their time. The number one prophet that's quoted in the New Testament again and again, and especially in Luke, we look to Isaiah for direction. It was their hit single. And to understand, think a little bit more about this, because I do think there are grounds to engage it with. You all remember, um, and don't be oversensitive here, but you remember after 9-11 when this song came out? Toby Keith's, brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. You'll be sorry that you messed with the U.S. of A. I read an article recently that told me that he spends hours upon his songs. Not easy for him, I was just to pop out a song. He wrote this song in 20 minutes. This song climbed the charts immediately. Number one single in America. Vengeance isn't hard for us to get after. When we pick up a wound of some sorts, when we collect some kind of pain, we do not have to have our arms twisted when we're asked, do you want to return the pain to the person who gave it to you? We very quickly will come to believe that retribution and resolution in one are the same. And that's exposed here in Nazareth, but also here in America. This was our hit single. And Isaiah was their hit single. And so when we think about that context of the people who are bleeding out in Nazareth and hometown boy Jesus coming back to preach a word, when he shows up at synagogue, it shouldn't be any amount of confusing that they ask him and they hand him the scroll from Isaiah and say, preach on this text right here. That was the free bird of this time. That's not surprising whatsoever. What's surprising, though, is that Jesus messes up the words. He doesn't sing the song the right way. When they hand him the scroll, 
and he steps in front of the people and positions himself behind the pulpit. He is scrawny. He's been in the woods for six weeks with no food, no water. When they hand him the scroll, he looks down and this is what is written. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's what was written. But this is what was read. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see the, the difference between the two? Jesus' reading stops short. He doesn't sing the song the right way. The most catalytic moment gets canceled out. He brings it to what would seem to be a premature close. Jesus stops the reading short. And the implication is that Isaiah took the revelation too far. Jesus brings the song to a close where people preferred him to keep singing. And then he sits down and he does the mic drop. And you have this moment here then. Everyone at first is excited about the, the poetry, the prose. He's dazzling up there, preach. But then when they realize what it is that he just did, they get uncomfortable with the message. And so they immediately start to discredit the medium. Isn't this Joseph's son? You can't handle the heat that comes from the one who came from the father. Let's immediately start talking about his dad. You know, you start looking at a text like this, and we'll probably skip the rest, but you start looking at a text like this, and it becomes very apparent as it escalates from zero to 60, and they end up trying to drive him out of the town completely. You look at a text like this, and you recognize that the people that were sitting in that synagogue on that Saturday morning, they couldn't know Jesus because they already knew Jesus. They couldn't see who Jesus is because they had their beliefs about who Jesus was. And when Jesus stops their song where they were trying to keep on singing, well, that was just too uncomfortable to go where he had asked them to go. They couldn't know Jesus because they already knew Jesus. Eventually, Jesus, he, he hits his breaking point and he passes through the crowd and he goes on his way. Rejected by his own hometown. There's so much, so much in this text that I would love to uh, focus in on. The reason why I don't know how to do so because it's all overwhelming. I mean, you can pick it apart. Name your piece and it will all start to preach. Who in here hasn't had that experience where you have had an intimate encounter with God and your theology has grown expansive and you feel empowered and then you go home and have dinner with mom and dad and you try to tell them about the things that you have seen and they don't see it the way that you do. 
who hasn't had family that you expect to support you be the same ones who walk out on you. So, I mean, we could talk about that. Or we could talk about what Jesus does here. We could talk about how Jesus isn't about trying to take the violent out. He's trying to take violence out. How he is trying to express to the people in this place that you can never have a fair victory if you choose violence as your means to the end. How he's trying to invite them to understand that there is a way to win that doesn't require a loser. We could talk about that as well. But the thing that's kept me up most this week is I've been trying to figure out what is it in this text is the idea of that they could not know Jesus because they already knew Jesus. My friendship circles have changed a lot of the years. Not my fault, theirs, obviously. People have come and gone though, right? I mean, like, you, it's just part of life and part of growing up is you have different people. One way or another, Jesus has been a constant. I'm not saying that where I've been like this active participant in relation with Jesus my whole life. But the idea of Jesus in our public imagination, in our personal lives, he's been a constant. There's a familiarity with Jesus. And in some ways that is beautiful, in other ways it is incredibly dangerous. Because like the people here in the synagogue... If you know something about Jesus and you are confident that you know something about Jesus, if you have an invitation from Jesus to go and expand and become bigger than you presently are, if that's what's happening, then you think about what you know and you defend it as opposed to discerning where it is that Jesus is calling you next. And for most of us in our American Christianity, if it's not comfortable, we're not going Jesus is our comforter, so we say. One of the things that I've had to realize as of late, one of the things that Jesus inflicts upon this crowd here in the synagogue is the reality that Jesus doesn't come to coddle us at all times, nor does he always intend to bring comfort. In fact, if you think about the primary role of Jesus throughout Scripture in the story that we have of him is that he is more confrontational than he is often found comforting. You have your moments that we think of and we tend to lift up and we would say otherwise. You think about Jesus um, defying the laws of buoyancy and walking on the water and picking Peter up who is drowning. That feels like a moment where he is comforting Peter in the midst of a crisis. That makes sense that that's a moment we think of Jesus as comforting. You think about Jesus when he feeds the 5,000 comfort food. Everybody loves him in that moment right there. Everybody is, his fame is spreading, the popularity is growing. But then you have the moments where he turns around and he says, eat my body, drink my blood. People are going, no, that's bizarre. You made it weird. You made it uncomfortable. You have your moments where Jesus says, look at the sky, do not the bird. But then you have the moments where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The people in the synagogue, they couldn't come into their callings because they refused to leave their comforts. And I wonder if the same could be said about some of us. We are unwilling to pay the price that, is be that we are being asked to pay should we actually leave our comforts. But we're not aware of the price that we are paying by staying. I, I'll, I'll tell you this, Kristen, between you and I. I had um, I had take your wife day to therapy this week. How'd it go? It was wild. 
it was something. I had this moment where we were talking about marriage. Do you have any questions about my marriage? Text me later. <laughs> we're talking about marriage, though, and we're talking about what, what does it look like for us to um, get, have a healthier marriage? Now, you know, by and large, Lauren and I, we're not in a crisis mode whatsoever. In fact, I would tell you that I cannot tell you off the top of my mind a time where Lauren and I have ever fought. But for the longest time, I would say something like that as a point of pride. Now I know, hmm, we haven't fought because I haven't always spoken what I've thought. So we get into this room and we're talking with our therapists. We're talking about communication. We're talking about what it looks like to be open and transparent with your feelings. And I'm feeling like the right thing to do, if Jesus were to be singing a song or Jesus hearing the song that I am singing, here is where he would direct the following lyrics. He would want me to learn how to be vulnerable. The moment I started doing that, though, it immediately got uncomfortable. And so there's this strange thing that happens where between Lauren and I, and it, you could put it into any area of our lives, when we think about how Christ comes and engages us. We both want to be stepping into our calling, but we really don't want to leave our comfort. And so I want Lauren and I to have a more intimate marriage, but I don't, I don't want to be more honest. I want to have a six-pack bod, but I don't want to do another plank, <laughs> right? And yet there is this reality again and again where if we are actually going to come into our calling, we need to come out of our comfort zone. And what might that look like for you? What songs might Jesus be singing into your lives that are uncomfortable? Asking you to consider it might rock the boat a little bit. It's amazing that the scripture this week asks us to look at this text when we are thinking about a life from this week who lived it. Martin Luther King Jr. Through and through, time and time again, he consistently was calling others to more than they presently had, to places they had not yet gone. But it was all come from the place where he himself was on the journey. There's the moment that he's kind of famous, but it's king in his kitchen. He had just received a death threat from somebody that did not know, saying that he and his family were done, that should he proceed and keep on doing the work that he was doing, that his life would not go on much further and his kids were also at risk. And he's standing in his kitchen when he collapses and says, God, I can't do this anymore. He doesn't say it, but I will. It's far too uncomfortable. This is too heavy of a price take that you're asking me to pay. When he talks about, he writes about how in that space, the Spirit of God met him and asked him to keep on marching, to stand up. That in the places where he does not know what to say, there will be words to fill his mouth. With the people that he has no power, there will be a confidence that surpasses evidence. But keep on moving to where I'm calling you, even if it means risking the comfort that you've had. Will you pray with me? Jesus, God, I believe that you are calling us into our comfort at all times. I believe, God, that you are calling us to carry our crosses, Lord. Lord, that when you hear the songs that we are singing in our lives, in our churches, God, 
that there are edits that you want to make and those are invitations that we ought to take. God, that you are a source of peace, but you also are the disruptor, the one who turns over tables. Christ, give us the courage to go to the places that we are afraid to go, to consider the songs that we're afraid to sing. You are good and we are grateful. And in Jesus' name, all God's children, we say together, amen. Matt talked about coming home and the expectations and the hopes that the Nazarene people had for their son, for Jesus, to come. And then they were dashed. They were disappointed. They were confused, hoping for comfort and getting instead some confrontation. And I've spoken with a lot of you after you've been home for the holidays. I know it's almost February now. But that wasn't an amazing experience for all of you. You had these hopes that of a warm welcome and some of you got it and others of you felt turned away and felt that confrontation at the table having hard conversations. Um, so as you take of um, this table tonight and this communion tradition, may you feel the weirdness, as Matt said, of those words, the comfort and the confrontation. Would you feel that you're coming home tonight as you come forward and take of the bread and of the cup and hear these confusing words that Jesus said on the night before he died when he said, he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. And likewise, he confusingly poured wine into this cup and said, this is my blood poured out as the new covenant shed for you. And when you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. And now we get comfort in those words. May we also feel confronted um, by that gift and feel welcomed to come forward and coming home. So at the table, we invite all to come forward. We'll have gluten-free elements in the center and gluten-full elements on the side. Um, and may you feel comforted by that. Would you stand and join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, glory forever.